to chapter 16 of the Confession tonight and lecture 24, if my, if my count is correct. And the title, as you see there, is of Good Works. Good Works. This is a long chapter, so we're going to look at the first two paragraphs that get into some of the meat of the matter, and Lord willing, we'll finish uh, the rest of the chapter next week. We come today to what might not seem like it. Good work seems like a pretty, you know, a pretty mild subject, but this is a subject that's been very controversial throughout the history of the church. That saints have debated upon the place of good works in the light of the Christian. It was a, it was an issue, a very big issue in the Reformation and the post-Reformation, as Um, the Reformed and Roman Catholic Church or Roman Catholics um, argued over, you know, what role do works have with our salvation, right? Are they a necessity of salvation? Is it faith plus our good works? Rome went so far as saying that anyone that says that justification, I'm paraphrasing, is simply by faith alone is anathema is cursed, should be cut off if you teach that doctrine. Um, And so while there was a debate in that day, there is still debate going on in reform circles even today. You see them currently even in our day right now. There's a lot of discussion on good works and their place in the life of the Christian and how they relate to things like justification. Um, And so we want to understand these things rightly in light of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about effectual calling, God drawing us by the power of the Spirit to Himself, overcoming our total depravity, our unbelief, um, and God then justifying us. That is the declaration that God makes that we are righteous before His sight because of Christ's sacrifice and His righteous life imputed to us. And then sanctification, where we are then growing subjectively, progressively in holiness as we, we, by the power and presence of the Spirit, put sin to death and look more to Christ. Let me remind you, I think this is on the first page there, of uh, chapter 11. This is the chapter on justification. Just to remind you what the confession says. It says that faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. So we are saved as we confess, as Ephesians 2 says, by faith alone. Amen? That's a, that's a, a hill we, we stand upon, a hill we'll die, up, die upon. Um, yet, that faith is not alone in the person justified but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. And so we'll try to understand, we'll begin to understand what the confession means there by faith working by love. That's really what this chapter is trying to clarify. And so some things we might consider are things like, what is it that determines a good work? Maybe we, we could say who as well determines what a good work is. Right? By, by what standard is a good work defined? Does man, can we determine what is 
a good work that is pleasing to the Lord. Does God accept our sincere motives, though they are polluted with sin? Can we have a motive that's not polluted with sin? Um, No. Um, How are good works related to salvation? These are are some of the challenges that we face when we take up this uh, subject. So if I can, pray one more time and ask for God's help. Our Father, we do thank you again uh, for the opportunity, Lord, to study this confession. And and as we do that, ultimately we want to study the Word and know the Word. And so we're taking this doctrine or this document that we believe summarizes your Word. And and, and we pray that it would be faithful. And if there's a place here, any places that are not in line with the Scripture, that we would would see that and align ourselves with the Bible. but we want to learn, and we want to grow, and we want to understand. And Lord, I think that all of us here that, that love the Lord Jesus, we desire to do good works. We don't want to have a, a Christianity that is complacent to do nothing in service to the Lord because, hey, we're saved. Uh, but, but we also want to be kept from a sort of legalistic, weighty burden that we have to continue working, working, working to please you, or we're somehow cast out of your of your uh, joyful presence. And so help us walk that, that middle road, Lord, that biblical line, and help us to begin to discern those things tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll get right into it. As I said, we're going to look at paragraphs 1 and 2 tonight um, because it's a lengthy chapter. And I think the length of it tells us something about the importance of the subject in the day of the Puritans that wrote these confessions. If you have been keeping notes and doing any comparisons, you'll see that unlike the last chapter, which was extremely different than the Westminster, this chapter is almost word for word. I believe there's three or four words that are modified, um, but it's pretty much identical to that of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So paragraph... One, we'll look first at the identity of good works. The identity of good works. This outline on your handout is taken from Sam Waldron's commentary. It says, Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. And so we're, really what we see here in this, in this uh, first paragraph is an explanation of what good works are and what good works are not. Right? We see them make a statement in the positive, a fairly vague statement, it's not re- very definitive, but nonetheless a statement in the positive and then a statement in the negative. As we zoom out a little bit from good works, we might ask the question, who is it? That defines what good is. How do we understand what goodness is? What what is good in this world? Does it just take us to deem something is good, to make it good? Um, A couple texts that I read to you. The first is is Hebrews. A lot of times I'll put the address because I just can't squeeze all this. I had to shrink the font today a bit. Um, Forgive me if there's not a lot of 
room for notes. Um, but Hebrews 13.21 says, Equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And these two texts are just the proof texts that are listed there. Listed there. So we are being equipped with everything good to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So we might say things that are good are things that are pleasing to the Lord. Right? That's an, maybe an obvious statement, but certainly from the perspective of a believer, needs to be said. Um, and then Micah 6, 8, sort of a popular text. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So the prophet there is, tells us, in, in, at least in some ways, what, 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 it, what good is. Um, one author says the word good that's used in the New Testament speaks of something that is beneficial, valuable, or morally beautiful. That's sort of the, the, the idea behind the word that's employed in the Greek version of the New Testament. This is what Sam Waldron says. Maybe this is a an, an helpful, easy explanation. He says, good works are those that conform to the law of God as revealed in the Scripture. Right? If we would say that the law of God is, is, is the Lord's revealed will for man, right? When we, when we think what is, what is God's moral code for us, what is righteousness, we look at God's revealed moral law. He's given us that. He engraved it in tablets of stone, at least the, the essence of it. And so we would say that a good work must, at least, at the minimum, accord with the law of God. Amen? Because that's God's revealed will of what righteousness and justice looks like in, a, in this world. And so, uh, good works are those that are prescribed by the Lord, that align with His revealed will. And we see then uh, in paragraph 1 there, as it says, good works are only such as God has commanded in His holy word. And Renahan points out two, two things there, according to that statement. Number one, that it, that it limits the actions that we can properly call good works. So we're talking in a specific sense, right? Good works in accordance with what God says. When, when God says, as we read in Ephesians 2, that we've been created for good works, God is the one that defines what those are. Right? We don't make that definition. Um, and then number two, only God in the word rightly defines good works. And then we see what they're not. So what they are, what are they? They're positive commands given by the Lord in the, in the Bible. What they aren't, the confession says, is um, not such as without the warrant thereof, there's no warrant for them, and not those that are just devised by man out of a sort of blind zeal. This sounds like a good thing for me to go and do or upon any pretense of, of good intentions. So just because I have good intentions doesn't necessarily mean that I'm doing a good work that's pleasing to the Lord. And so some might have much zeal to do something, right, without knowledge. You might be very zealous to do all sorts of things in the name of the Lord, but does that make those things good, good works? 
Remember, of course, what, what the Lord says in Matthew chapter 7, when, when those on that day will stand at the judgment seat of God, and they will say, we did so many things in your name, right? They attached the name of Christ. They thought they were doing things for God in the name of Jesus. And he'll say, depart from me. I didn't, I didn't know you. Those were not truly things that I had called you, commanded you to do, and you did not do them in obedience to me. You did them in some other accord. I remember I was thinking today when I was, when I was looking over these notes, um, two young ladies in a church we were at, one of them had a conversion experience. They were cousins, um, and they were in a youth group. You know, they were, they were young teen, uh, late teens, maybe young adults right in there. And they were, you know, the sort of youth group kind of fired up, want to be fired up for Jesus, want to be, want to do something radical. And so they were going to, they had, they had come to some of their, their father and some others and said, we're going to fast like Jesus did for 40 days, right? Um, they had some zeal, they had some excitement, but it might not have been wise and it certainly may not have been something that the Lord had commanded them to do. Um, I don't necessarily encourage you to fast for 40 days. We could probably all do well with some fasting, I would think, in our gluttonous sort of culture. Um, not, not for weight loss, but for uh, obedience to the Lord. Um, but the Lord doesn't command that, right? They had some zeal, and they didn't follow through with their... They were discouraged by their pastor and others, that so that might not be necessary. Um, some might have very good motives and good intentions, that, that, and they might really deem something as, as good. But in a proper sense, these are not defined as good works if they're not according to the Bible. So Renahan says this. Uh, maybe he'll help us think why this is important. He says, this is a very critical doctrine. It cuts to the heart of man-centered religion. Humanity seeks to do two things. Reject God's way and follow his own. It wants no part of true religion, yet it very much desires a form of religion while denying the power of the true religion. He says, for this reason, men have devised a variety of religious acts, philanthropies, and good deeds without reference to Scripture. They then take these acts and build a religion out of them, foolishly thinking that God will accept them because they have performed these deeds. Paul speaks of this as he evaluates unbelieving Israelites in in Romans 10. He says they pursued their own righteousness while they were ignorant of God's, and they faced judgment as a result of that. And so instead of starting with God and what he has said, man starts with himself and what he deems to be something righteous, and then he goes in that direction and says, well, of course God is now pleased with what I've done because I've done this good thing. But it may very well be something that God never commanded um, I think a biblical text, if you want to turn there to Colossians chapter 2, is, uh, is one of the key texts as we think about this idea of doing things that man might deem as good for God when they're things that are never been commanded of the Lord. The old men would call this here will worship, worship according to the will of man. Um, we could read a lot, but I'm going to read Uh, verse 20, Colossians 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, 
referring to things that are all perishing as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we can do, you know, you see the old monks that would whip and lash themselves or they would say in obedience to God, I'm not going to lie down. I'm going to sleep here standing up or I'm going to not have a bed but sleep on a, on a concrete slab. Um, I think we were discussing a couple weeks back, I think it was Wednesday night, picture that was going around of a man in, in India or something that had his arm in the air. Was that, was that? And he had his arm in the air for 20 years or something. Um, there was nothing left but a, but a, you know, a tent of skin on a bone. Um, but it was some, aesthetic, some act of asceticism that he was doing for whatever reason. Um, and we can do this thinking that this is a righteous deed before, before God, whatever God that man, that man believed in. But if it's not according to the Bible, it's not truly a good work. And so, uh, simply, good works are those that God has commanded and deemed to be good works, not the uh, fancies of men. Anybody have any thoughts on that or any, any, anything that comes to mind? Any discussion? So the importance of good works is, is the next. And it, this is helpful, I think, and we'll spend our time here. Um, it says, these good works, again, more qualification, done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits of and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. So, I, I want to just say very clearly that the Bible commands Christians to perform good works. Okay? Um, I, 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 I think it would be foolish to say otherwise. Now, I know that there can be some difference in how we communicate and, how, and what we emphasize and what we emphasize or communicate can, can lead to our practice, how we live. But let me just read you some passages. I gave you these addresses. If you want to check them out later, I'm just going to read through them. I read already Ephesians 2.10. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul says to Timothy, they are to, do, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Second Timothy that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is, the Bible is sufficient to equip us for these good works. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So the one that professes to know God, but denies Him by their works, they really don't have faith because they don't have true works. He says they're detestable and disobedient, and they're unfit for any good work. So the one that does not know God cannot do any good work. Titus 2.7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus 2.14, who gave himself 
for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 3, remind him to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Again, Titus, this trustworthy is, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, things that are excellent and profitable for people. So there's some help and we, as we think about what good works are, things that are excellent, things that are profitable. Again, Titus 3, 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And maybe the most famous and controversial text, and we won't read the whole thing, but it's James chapter 2, right? And there are many that have pitted Paul against James and say they have a different view of justification. Um, But here is what James says in 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So this person has faith but has no evidence whatsoever in their life of said faith. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what what good is that? So also by itself, if it does not have works, faith is dead. He goes on to say a a, a statement that is difficult for us on the surface, that we're justified by works. Um, We need to understand that rightly, that our faith is vindicated by works. But clearly, we're commanded to do good works in the Bible. And anyone that says we're not, or says that we want to teach that we're not, is just in error, plainly. Um, But we do want to understand the role and the place of good works works properly. They are not in any way directly connected to our justification. We're saved by faith alone, by trusting in Christ alone. Good works are the fruit of saving faith. They pour forth. They come out of saving faith. They are the work of the Spirit as He has saved us apart from works, given us a new heart, and now we live a different way and do good things, if you will, to serve the Lord. Um, So we have here six blessings of good works, six blessings that we see in uh, this this wonderful paragraph that the, the good works that are done in obedience to God's commandments, they are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. So again, according to James 2 and elsewhere, If we truly have a faith that is living, there's going to be evidence. Amen? You're going to see. You're going to say, have you seen this this young man, his response to the word? Have you seen his life? Have you seen him? He's excited. He's changed. He's transformed. He now loves God. He wants to be in the church. He's, he's, He's digging in his Bible. He's put this sin over here to death. Remember the... The, uh, the, the, the letter Paul writes to the Thessalonians when, when he says, you know, the, 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 your neighboring people, they're, they're in awe because you've cast down your idols. This is a pagan, idolatrous people. And he says, we don't, even, we don't even have to preach the word because your faith is being seen. It's evident. It's visible. There is a transformation 
that has taken place. The old is passing away and the new has come. Glory to God. And so we see six uh, blessings again here from good works. Firstly, it says, by them, believers manifest their thankfulness. This is a way that we show gratitude to the Lord, right? By serving Him, by being obedient to Him, by being faithful to His commands. In a lot of these, and I'll read at least some of these texts that are just the proof texts, they're listed for the, for the paragraph, but it quotes Psalm, Psalm 116.12, which says, What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call in the name of the Lord. Notice that the psalmist is saying, God has, has blessed me infinitely. How shall I respond? What shall I give to Him? How do I lay down my life? As Paul says, we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, as a, as a return to the grace of God. Or we think of Isaiah chapter 6, and he has been encountered there, according to John, is it John chapter 12, John chapter 11, he's accounted there the, the, the glory of the Son of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, as he's there enthroned, and Isaiah sees the glory of God enthroned, he sees God on a throne, and, he, and he's humbled, and he confesses his sin, and he is, is, this coal is placed upon his lips, the very place that he says, I'm a sinner, this blazing hot coal off of the altar of God's sacrifice comes and burns his lips, and it says there, you're clean, you're cleansed, right? And then we have this sort of, you know, it's kind of interesting, rhetorical, interrogative question from God. God's there sort of like, who will we send? Who shall we send out there? And what does he say? Here I am. Send me. It's a response of gratitude, right, to the Lord. I want to serve. I've been redeemed. So our good works are a way that we can manifest our thankfulness to the Lord. Secondly, we see that good works strengthen our, or it says, their assurance. This is where we might have some confusion, some debate today. Um, There's been an emphasis in our day, and I think from good intentions... And maybe as we think about all of the gospel-centeredness that has come about in the last 20 years or so, um, that says we must look solely outside of ourselves for assurance, right? We don't look inward. We don't look to us. We look only to Christ. He's the source of any assurance of faith. And some would say that it's wrong to look inward at all, to have any assurance that God is at work within me. Because if I look inward, I might be in despairing. I must only look to Christ. And I want to say, amen. We must, first and foremost, and centrally, supremely, look to Christ. His person, His finished work on the cross. That is the object of our hope. He is the ground of our assurance. But is it only there? Is that the only place that we can look to have assurance of faith? Now listen to chapter 18 in paragraph 2 of the Confession on Assurance. It says, Assurance of faith is founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. And we need to say amen to that, right? It is founded there. But there's another word, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made. And on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. 
And so they would say that, yes, it is primarily and centrally upon the blood and righteousness of Christ. But we can also see that by the grace of God, there's a transformation within you. I shared with some of the men that this past week, as I shared some of the things that had happened here on Sunday, I got a phone call from a man um, that I hadn't talked to for 10 plus years, um, that a long time ago, maybe, I don't know, a long time ago, um, I was struggling with some things and I confessed my sin uh, to my pastor at the time. I was in a church at the time and um, he brought one of the elders that was a man that had struggled with addiction and he sort of came alongside and was mentoring me and brought me into this men's fellowship and and um, he, he just sent a message on Facebook and said, I've been praying for you all these years. Thankful to see the work of the Lord in your life. And I was, I was weeping. I was broken because I, it just brought me back to those days. And, and that was just a wonderful assurance and hope of the grace of God that, yes, God has not forsaken me. Praise the Lord. There's evidence by his grace, all to his glory, that, that there's been change. And he's, he's preserved that. And I hope that you, too, can look at your own life and say, praise be to God. I'm not, I'm not who I once was. Right? Our assurance is not primarily focused on our experience because it will wane. It needs to be centered upon Christ. But it says here that believers can strengthen their assurance through the things, the good works that by the grace of God they do. And I think the Bible uh, agrees with this. John says that by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So if there's a new principle of desire for obedience to God, that is one way that we can discern that I've come to know the Lord. He goes on to say, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know we are in him. So he doesn't just say only think about Jesus. Certainly that's prime, that's, that's central. But he says, if you love God, if you love the brethren, he would say later, right? This is how we know we've come to know him. Uh, Mark Jones has just a very simple syllogism. This is a little formula where you have a major premise, minor, minor premise, and a conclusion. And he says this, to sum this up, the major premise, those who keep God's commandments love Christ. Minor premise, by the grace of God, I keep God's commandments. Conclusion, I love Christ. Right? It's not an infallible formula, but I think it's a helpful summary of what's being said here. Um, and so they strengthen their assurance through good works. Thirdly, it says that we, uh, in our good works, edify the brethren. Edify the brethren. This one, I think, is, is, is obvious, right? You think of all the one another passages. Or what are we doing in those one another passages? We are living out the commandments of God, loving God and loving neighbor. And when we do this, our brethren will be edified and enriched. We're called to love one another and forgive one another and bear with one another and serve one another and seek good for one another and on and on and on. All of these texts, uh, as we're called to do good works toward our neighbor, and they will be edified. Fourthly, we are called to adorn the profession of the gospel. Adorn the profession of the gospel. So this is language. It's not, I don't think it's used as often in our day, but it's taken from Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 says that bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, 
They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adore the doctrine, adorn, excuse me, the doctrine of God, our Savior. So our good works validate our profession of the gospel and make it more appealing. Make the, we, we beautify it, if you will. It shows the fruit and the benefit of our profession of faith to others. Listen to this man's explanation here. His name is Orr, his last name, O-R-R. God will beautify his children with the glories of his redeeming grace. He will adorn them with a meek and quiet spirit, which in his sight is very precious, that they in turn may adorn his commandments. As a bride decks herself with jewels, so the heavenly father beautifies his children with the robe of righteousness. So we adorn the gospel. We, we, I hate to say add to, um, but we visibly display the goodness of the gospel to others as we perform works that are pleasing to God. Does that make sense? Are, are we tracking? Fifthly, it stops the mouth of adversaries. Stops the mouth of adversaries. First Peter 2 is helpful here. Um, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so through good works, we can shut the mouth of those that seek to malign us. He says such as well, if you go just up the page in verse 11, 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So they might see the things you do as they trash you and talk bad about you, that they might eventually glorify God. We would hope before the day of visitation, if he speaks of the day. But it stops the mouths of those that would, would hate on the church, that they have, they have nothing to say about the people of God, right? That a man would be above reproach. There's nothing that sticks to him. There's nothing that they can grab onto or point out to say, look at, look at, look at that sin. Look at that glaring hypocrisy. And sixthly, they glorify God, whose workmanship they are created in Christ Jesus thereunto. Paul says in Philippians 1, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It may be a, a, a text that's often re, uh, remembered or memorized in Sunday school. Uh, Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And listen to the English annotation on that, uh, an old commentary on that verse. It says, Your end must be, your goal must be, God's honor, not your own. Though ye can add no glory to God, yet you must confess 
how glorious he is and give men cause to praise him for the good ye his children do to them. He adds, I think this is Renahan, the self-centered and self-serving sinner changed by grace becomes the instrument of much good by his actions. And so he says, you cannot add one speck of glory to the Lord, yet you must confess how glorious that Lord is, and you must give men cause to praise him for the good that he, they see you, God, doing in you. That makes sense. And it closes that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. Romans 6.22, but now you can, now you that have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so the, the fruit unto holiness, the fruit of that true saving faith leads to the end or the goal, which is eternal life in the presence of God. And so really... What we're trying to say, if I could sum up these couple chapters or paragraphs, is that salvation is a work of God in the whole man, right? It is not a momentary decision that is forgotten soon after. It is not a, uh, the affiliation to a certain church or a certain religious group. It is not something that is merely handed down because of someone's family or someone's geography, um, but salvation is the renovation of the whole man. And thus, true faith is a person has been recreated by the power of the Spirit of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. There will be fruit. Right? There will be true holiness that will lead to eternal life. The holiness does not cause the eternal life, but the holiness is the fruit of the fact that the man truly has been conformed to Jesus. And so we need to be careful that we do not confuse and you know, sort of, sort of um, mesh together justification and sanctification. Right? One is an objective declaration that God makes. One is a progressive subjective process that we're in. But we cannot separate them either. Right? The one who is justified is being sanctified. This is, it's really just simple biblical teaching, right? Um, but we can muddy the waters here a bit at times. So I'm going to stop there um, and open up for discussion, questions, pushback, thoughts, or what have you. you like to ask.